Uh, today we're going to, to look at the, the doctrine of the Four Noble Truths. And these are, I feel, um, of utmost centrality to the whole uh, Buddhist endeavour, as it were. We have, for example, the Buddha saying that whoever in the past the present or the future becomes fully awakened to things, does so by becoming fully awakened to the Four Noble Truths. But this is really the, the definition of um, awakening, is to be awake to these Four Truths. And again, I think we have to note that he's not saying that to be awakened means to be awakened to the truth. Certainly not truth with a capital T. But a plurality of truths which are profoundly interlinked one with the other such that they constitute a process. And so this is the second foundation, I would argue, in uh, providing a support for a secular approach to Buddhism. To see these four truths as constituting a process, not a state, some transcendent state. As I mentioned yesterday, uh, the four truths uh, seem to me to be um, a translation of the principle of conditioned arising, if we're beginning to get a handle on that idea, into a way of life. When the Buddha describes his uh, experience um, under the Bodhi tree, he doesn't mention the Four Noble Truths. He speaks in terms of his awakening as one simply to the principle of conditioned arising. And I think it's probably good that we look at that passage first and then look at the first discourse where the four truths are spelled out. But the way I understand it is that the insight into conditioned arising or conditionality is the first point, the starting point, that then evolves, and it seems that that might have occurred over a period of weeks, months maybe, into his understanding of the Four Noble Truths. So if you go to the top of page 15, you have, um, which is right before the text we'll then go on to look at, where the Buddha is speaking and he says, I considered, have you got that? I considered, is how the text begins. Is that the same on your text? Yeah. Um, now this is a passage from a text called the, the Arya Pariyasana Sutta. The Discourse on the Noble Quest. And it's, a, it's the only sutta in the canon where the Buddha actually talks about his own journey. And he does speak of it quite literally as a journey, a quest. He talks of his renunciation, leaving home, of practicing under two teachers who taught him the, the seventh and the eighth jhana, uh, the deepest levels of absorption, 
which he says, that's not the way. It doesn't work. That's not resolving my dilemma. Having come to a sort of dead end in the practices that were available at his time, and I feel in some ways this must have been an extraordinary crisis. He's sort of, he's explored all possibilities. He's, he's done the worldly thing. Now he's done the religious thing. And he still hasn't come to terms with what it means to be born, to be subject to sickness, aging, and to die. In other words, the primary religious question. And so he's all on his own. Nothing has helped him solve these issues. And so according to the legend, in the, there's no actual passage in the Pali suttas where he talks about sitting beneath the Bodhi tree. I think possibly that is a later accretion. The point is that he reaches, uh, I feel, a crisis and he resolves that crisis by, as it were, a determined effort to somehow resolve that koan, which is his life. But I don't think that when he, as it were, achieved that resolution, he somehow got the whole of Buddhism writ in words of fire in the sky before him. And then he just went out and just sort of dictated what he knew. I think that's naive. As we'll see from this passage, um, this awakening uh, is not so much described as a term of understanding, but rather as a profound uh, existential shift within himself. I'll read out the passage. He says, This Dhamma I have reached is deep, hard to see, difficult to awaken to, quiet and excellent, not confined by thought, subtle, sensed by the wise or felt by the wise. But people love their place. They delight and revel in their place. But it is hard for people who love, delight and revel in their place to see this ground, the this condition, conditioned arising and also hard to see this ground the stilling of all formations the relinquishing of all bases the fading away of craving desirelessness stopping Nibbana were I to teach the Dhamma and others were not to understand me that would be tiring and vexing for me This to me is the most economical and the least embellished of the various accounts of the, the Buddha's awakening. Now, what seems quite clear from this passage is that um, the Buddha has experienced a, a, a movement from a place where he was... Uh, attached to his identity, his role, his position, his family, his identity, his ego, let's say, anything that can constitute what one would regard as one's place in the world. And having let go of that, he has 
experienced, or he has seen, as he says, conditioned arising. And at the same time, he's seen this from a place in which greed and hatred, confusion, etc. have stopped. That's the crucial thing. He uses this word tana, which roughly speaking means ground or foundation. It's the same word actually as in sati pa tana. Right? The, the, usually translated as the foundations of mindfulness. Whereas in fact it actually means something like the grounding of mindfulness. Same word as in the word ground he uses here. He's also playing on words. Alia could also be translated as ground. Alia, some of you might be familiar with later Buddhist philosophy that talks of the Alia Vijnana, the foundation consciousness or the storehouse consciousness. It's not a term the Buddha uses. But we do know the word Alia from another context and that, that is whenever we say the word I saw the Himalayas. It's the Him Alia. Alia means the place or the foundation of the Him, which means snow. That's what him, Himalaya means, Himalaya. So he's playing on words that are loosely equivalent. And we can only understand the meaning in context. It comes back again to this idea that we mentioned earlier about leaving home for homelessness. Alia is like home. And tanna, conditioned arising, is like homelessness. Now what's strange is that this ground he speaks of is very much not, it's not at all like a ground. A ground we think of as something solid, something we can rely upon, something that doesn't budge. But here he describes the ground as ida pachayata paticha samupada conditioned arising, something that's constantly coming into being, vanishing, coming into being, vanishing. It's like a stream, it's like a flow, it's like a, a process of events that never stops, that never stands still, that you can never really grasp or, or, or get hold of. And this, of course, is what he describes as the Dhamma itself, this conditioned arising. It's also worth pointing out that in this passage there's no word that um, has its root in uh, or ha ha is founded in the root nya, to know. It's, there's no sense of knowing something. It's really very much a question of having to shift it to another perspective. Having let go of attachment to one's place, one's identity, and having then been able to open up unconditionally, to the ground of life itself. Now this is quite at odds with the religious culture of his day. And again, there's a subtle sort of uh, swipe here at Brahmanic thought. Because one of the terms the, the priestly caste would have used for God is Adishtana, which means a foundation or ground is the same word, Sanskrit, uh, shtana and tanna, same. And the Buddha is saying 
the, the ground, the foundation, is not something unconditioned, some transcendent divine source, but this shifting fluid world itself. So he's, in a sense, um, woken up uh, to uh, the phenomenal world. And he's abandoned any sense of there being anything other than that. This is where we are, as it were, um, demanded to find meaning and value within the changing world, within the suffering world, within the world of impersonal events that flood forth and disappear. It's very unsettling. And he also realizes that were he to teach this, people probably wouldn't understand him. And I think we can look at that in two ways. One is that were he to teach this, it would almost certainly not be understood by the mainstream religious culture of his time. It would seem batty. Uh, quite odd, quite um, objectionable. This is a sort of atheistic view. But I think it's also hard to teach because it also feels counterintuitive in terms of, um, of our own deepest uh, sense of there being something solid and permanent, either in oneself, a soul, or in some grander sense of a, of a greater soul, that, that of God. All of that um, would probably make it very difficult for him to get his message across. In fact, he says that uh, in the verse that follows, at the end, he says, people who are caught up in their desires and covered with darkness, he says, they will not see what goes against the stream. They will not see what goes against the stream. Going against the stream. In other words, this image that what he's teaching is something that goes completely against the, um, the flood of our own habitual behavior as well as the stream of conventional religious belief. It's counterintuitive. And this, I feel, is, is an important point that, um, again, often we like to think that intuition is a good thing. Well, I think it is. I think our culture doesn't value intuition strongly enough. But we also have to reckon that intuition is not necessarily right. If I followed all my intuitions, I wouldn't be here now because I wouldn't have got on that plane. My intuition said it's going to crash. It always does each time I get on the plane. <laughs> I'm jolly glad I didn't follow it. Intuition can be right, intuition can be wrong. It's just a faculty we have, like knowledge or feeling, that helps us get by in the world. But it can also mislead us. And I think possibly one of the deepest intuitions we have is the sense that we are a separate ego. I'm completely convinced of that. I don't have to prove it to myself, I don't have to, to sort of think it through. That's my gut feeling of me. It's intuitive. So we have to be careful not to raise intuition up to some kind of faultless divine vision. 
but at the same time not to dismiss intuition as being somehow not reliable. It's the same with all things, all human faculties. So what happens after this experience is the Buddha basically doesn't know what to do next. Traditionally, the text says that he stays under the Bodhi tree for about another six to eight weeks, just sort of twiddling his thumbs or whatever Buddhas do when they don't know what to do. <laughs> and, uh, but eventually, um, and again, I'm not going to go into the story because we don't have time, uh, a god appears, Brahma, Brahma Sahampati, and says there are people out there with little dust on their eyes. They'll understand. And so he goes off to to Sanat, or Isipatana, as it was known then, and he tracks down his five former uh, colleagues in asceticism. And it's to them that he then starts to speak. And here he now turns the wheel of Dhamma, as this discourse has come to be known. And um, I'll just read it out. This is what I heard. He was staying at Baranasi in the deer park at Isipatana and he addressed the group of five. One gone forth from home to homelessness does not pursue two dead ends. Which two? Infatuation, which is vulgar, uncivilized and meaningless. A mortification, which is painful uncivilized and meaningless. I have awoken to a middle path that does not lead to dead ends. It is a path that generates vision and awareness. It leads to tranquility, insight, awakening and release. It has eight branches. Appropriate seeing, thinking, talking, acting, working trying, recollecting and concentrating. This is dukkha. I'm going to use the word dukkha rather than suffering or pain from now on. This is dukkha. Birth is dukkha. Aging is dukkha. Sickness is dukkha. Death is dukkha. Encountering what is not dear is dukkha. Separation from what is dear is dukkha. Not getting what one wants is dukkha. This psychophysical condition, the five aggregates, is dukkha. And this is craving. It is repetitive. It wallows in attachment and greed, obsessively indulging in this and that, craving for stimulation, craving for existence, craving for non-existence. And this is cessation, the traceless fading away and cessation of that craving, the letting go and abandoning of it, freedom and independence from it. And this is the path, the path with eight branches, appropriate seeing, thinking, talking, acting, working, trying, recollecting and concentrating. Such is dukkha. It can be fully known. It has been fully known. Such is craving. 
It can be let go of. It has been let go of. Such is cessation. It can be experienced. It has been experienced. Such is the path. It can be cultivated. It has been cultivated. So there arose in me illumination about things previously unknown. As long as my knowledge and vision was not entirely clear about the twelve aspects of the Four Noble Truths, I did not claim to have had a peerless awakening in this world with its humans and celestials, its gods and devils, its ascetics and priests. Only when my knowledge and vision were entirely were clear in all these ways did I claim to have had such awakening. The freedom of my mind is unshakable. There will be no more repetitive existence. This is what he said. Inspired, the five delighted in his words. And while he was speaking, the dispassionate, stainless Dhamma eye arose in Kondanya, who is the elder of the five ascetics, who said, whatever has started can stop, or whatever has arisen can cease. Now, I think it's difficult, really, to believe that this is literally a transcript of what the Buddha said uh, in Sanat. If there'd been a recording device like this one, I don't think it would have come out verbatim um, uh, as I've just read it out. <clears throat> this text, um, in a sense, quite uncharacteristically for Buddhist suttas, um, has the impression of being very, very finely worked and reworked. It's very short for a start, whereas a lot of suttas are very long and don't seem to say a great deal. Here we don't have all of this endless repetition, and instead we have a very concise uh, statement of the core ideas of the Buddha's Dhamma. And in fact, as the Buddha himself says very clearly at the end, this is what constituted my awakening. Very, very clear. All of these questions we have about, you know, what is enlightenment? What does it mean to be a Buddha? We don't have to look further than here. It's very clear. I've often, um, uh, in, on courses, and I think the cat's out of the bag now because too many of them have been recorded, is um, I ask people, you know, people who have studied Buddhism, meditators and so on, um, I read out this passage, as long as my vision and knowledge was not entirely clear about X, I did not claim to have had a peerless awakening in the world, and then I ask, <coughs> what was X? And very rarely does anybody get it right. People will usually say, um, emptiness, uh, not self, nibbana, the unconditioned, uh, nature of mind. Some, are, some will say, you know, conditioned arising. But what's interesting is that we almost invariably, or at least the people I've asked so far, 
tend to think that there must be one privileged object that constituted this awakening. And I think part of the problem with this becomes, comes about because we, we, we can't break out of the habit of the picture of the Buddha seated beneath a tree, as in so many uh, icon, iconographic representations. And we think of this as a kind of mystical experience in which the Buddha has tapped into some higher truth, usually some god-like higher truth. And so we assume that the Buddha's awakening refers to having awoken to something called reality. And this becomes extremely muddled when, in a very well-intentioned, sort of universalist kind of way, we'll say that, well, the Buddha was enlightened, and Jesus was enlightened, and Rumi was enlightened, and Ken Wilber was enlightened, as though they're all sort of tapped into some kind of uh, primary, transcendent, absolute reality. And yet... I think that actually confuses things considerably because the Buddha's awakening, I think, is quite deliberately phrased not as awakening to the truth, but as awakening to four truths. And if we look at it a little bit more carefully, he doesn't even say four truths. He says the 12 aspects of the four truths. And this is characteristic of a lot of Buddhist teaching and I'm sure you're probably familiar with it, and that, that, that is this endless penchant for long lists. There's always the five of this and the ten of that and the four of those and the 25 of the other. And you kind of think, why, why, why can't we just simplify it all? But I think this is deliberate. Uh, I think the Buddha is quite deliberately um, turning attention to the plurality and the complexity of the phenomenal world. He's recognizing that you don't get awakened to some great truth by cultivating or by tapping into some pure awareness or consciousness. But when he talks about consciousness or awareness, immediately he starts dissecting it. He starts teasing out the fact that it's always a complex act to be conscious uh, he's, there's a brilliant analysis of consciousness. We won't have time really to go into it this week. But he, he, he's probably one of the first people to recognize that, that consciousness is not a pure state of just knowing. That to know something means that you need to be in contact with something, there needs to be an emotional tone, there needs to be perceptual organization, there needs to be a choice and intention, and there needs to be a degree of focus what are called the five Nama factors. They're listed in here somewhere. And he also recognizes you cannot have consciousness without an object. That consciousness is an emergent property of a system, not some pre-existent uh, pure cognition or pristine awareness or something. And the same with truth. Truth is not a single indivisible state or thing but in the Buddha's understanding there are at least four key aspects to what it means for something to be true and then he subverts the whole notion of truth itself 
by talking of 12 aspects of the Four Noble Truths. And when you figure out what those 12 aspects are, you realize that his conception of truth is not of something that sort of corresponds to some reality out there in the world, but rather the truths that he proposes are tasks to be performed. There's something to do, not something to believe or something to gain some sort of insight into. There's something to do. So I'm going to read the text backwards. I think it actually is strangely more helpful. We've started at the end here. If we go to the preceding lines, there it becomes clear what these 12 aspects are. Such is dukkha, it can be fully known, it has been fully known. Three sentences. One is recognition, such is dukkha. The second is it can be fully known. In other words, this is the task that needs to be performed in this case, fully knowing dukkha. And from the Buddha's perspective, this is something that he has fully known. In other words, he has accomplished that task. So you have recognition, performance and accomplishment of four tasks. And three times four equals twelve. That's where we get the twelve aspects. So in each uh, truth, we have to recognize what it is that we might need to do, then do it, and hopefully at some point actually accomplish that task, or fulfill it. When we've done that with regard to each of these four truths, then we can consider ourselves to be fully awake. But as you might expect, this is something that's not going to happen overnight. It won't happen by, you know, by doing a weekend meditation course. This is really a, a template uh, for living a human life. And I suspect for most of us, certainly for myself, this uh, process will continue to engage my energies until I die. And in fact, I think what the Buddha is pointing to, rather than awakening as some kind of state that you get and then you're kind of finished, he's talking of it as a process that will continue um, for as long as you're on this earth, in this body, with other people, with suffering. Now how then, or in what sense, are these four truths um, a translation of the principle of conditioned arising? We saw yesterday that the Buddha defines a conditioned arising as follows, and I'll read it out again. He says, let be the past Udayin, let be the future, I shall teach you the Dhamma. When this exists, that comes to be. With the arising of this, that arises. Okay. Now, this is, I feel, exactly what's happening with these four truths. When there is the 
full knowing of dukkha, then the letting go of craving arises. When the letting go of craving is present, then the experience of its cessation arises. And when the experience of the cessation of craving exists, then the cultivation of the Eightfold Path arises. Now, I must admit that that is not the orthodox interpretation. But, to me, it is the most economical interpretation. And it explains something that often puzzles Buddhists, or anyone who reads about Buddhism, namely, why did the Buddha present the four truths in that order? And I think the reason he did was because as actions or as tasks, one task is the precondition for the next. And the second task is the precondition for the third. And the third task is the precondition for the fourth. And to make it even more continuous, I would argue that the fourth truth is the precondition for the first. And the first truth, the precondition for the second. And that this is implied in the structure of the sutra itself, the structure of the text itself. If you recall how, we, how the text began, he begins by saying, I have awoken to a middle path that does not lead to dead ends. It has eight branches. That, that's the first statement. Now what that is, is the fourth noble truth. Right? Exactly the same. And then, without transition, he goes straight into this is dukkha. Remember, the, the Eightfold Path uh, ends with recollecting or, or being mindful and concentration, which implies the question, mindful of what? Concentrating on what? Well, concentrating and being mindful that birth is dukkha, aging is dukkha, sickness is dukkha, death is dukkha. So you have therefore, at least in my interpretation, um, what we might describe as a kind of positive feedback loop. Um, I'm going to give you another example of this. If you read, in fact, I'm not going to read it out now, we'll come to it at the end of the week. Read the parable of the city that is quite near the beginning of your quotes. And there you have the same sequence. The, the Buddha describes a man who goes into a forest and finds an ancient path and follows the ancient path and the ancient path leads to an ancient city. And then he goes to the king and says, let's rebuild the city. And they rebuild the city. The city. Then he interprets it. The, the path, which is the first thing he finds, is the eightfold path, the middle way. And the city stands for two, two things, conditioned arising and the Four Noble Truths. So the path leads to the Four Noble Truths. It's exactly the same sequence here. You'll see the same in the structure of the, the Satipatthana Sutta, the Discourse on the Foundations of Mindfulness. It culminates at the very end, the last of the Dhamma uh, 
the, 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 you know you have have you have body feelings mind dharma and then he lists the things you should be mindful about in the dharma and the last thing is the four noble truths it all ends up with the four noble truths the same is true of the structure of this big volume called the Sanyutta Nikaya the very last section section 52 four noble truths and yet curiously we often think that the four noble truths are kind of sort of beginner's stuff and sadly in Mahayana Buddhism these are regarded as Hinayana or lesser teachings I'm a Hinayanist but in the Mies van der Rohe sense of the word less is more so let's go back to uh, to look at this, how this might work I feel the most important uh, thing to understand here is what it means to fully know dukkha. I would argue that all Buddhist practice starts and perhaps continues to the end as a practice of fully knowing dukkha. I'm deliberately not translating dukkha because I don't want to get caught up with this notion of suffering and pain. That's part of it, obviously. But dukkha really is a very difficult term to translate. It, might, it refers, as it were, to the totality of our existential condition, as, as is quite clearly stated, birth, aging, sickness, death. And then it concludes with the, our psychophysical condition. That is dukkha. Now sometimes that is painful, of course. But to go into this rather sort of morbid account that life is suffering, as you hear so often, is actually, I think, missing the point. It's blatantly obvious that life is not always suffering. But this, I think, is resolved by recognizing that, as I mentioned yesterday, the Buddha's teaching is not descriptive, it is prescriptive. As soon as you take the first noble truth as a description of life, as being dukkha, then you're going to end up with exactly the same problem the Christians have in reverse. The Christians will say, or the, well, yeah, the Christians will say, God is good, or loving, gentle father. And yet, in, immediately, the, the objection is, well, why is there so much suffering in the world? Then you get into theodicy, justifications of God. The Buddhists, it's the other way around. They say life is suffering. And then the objection is, but wait a minute, there's a lot of happiness in the world. Ah, well, you see, this is the usual answer. It's not, they're not really happy. <laughs> but why not? I think that's rather perverse, frankly. Um, why are they not really happy? Well, because they haven't come across Buddhism yet, is the usual answer. <laughs> they haven't really listened carefully, that actually the world is a terribly miser miserable place. If they weren't so deluded, they'd know that. It's ridiculous uh, to get into that kind of argumentation, just as it's ridiculous, this whole business of theodicy, justifi the justification of a good God, you know, who allows Auschwitz, for example. But if we take the first noble truth not as a attempt to describe the world but as a prescription in other words a suggestion that we, can, that we should do something 
then we solve the problem. Because the point about the first noble truth is that it is a task, as the Buddha says, fully no dukkha. It's got nothing to do with describing the world accurately. It's saying, look, you might find it very valuable. You might really get to the root of a lot of your, your, your frustration and your pain and your anxiety and your sense of not being fulfilled, your sense of meaninglessness. If only you would fully know your situation. You fully embrace your existential condition. And this does have a lot to do with embracing suffering, I agree. But the point is that this is seen as a task that will actually, hopefully, um, wake you up and get you into a perspective on life from which you can live differently. That's the point. You see, the four truths are not uh, four discrete states. They, they, they morph one into the other. And the outcome is the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path can only really be entered when you have had a, an experience of uh, a craving-free moment. Not a craving-free moment like, you know, I'm a bit bored now. <laughs> but a deep realization within yourself that you do not you're not obliged to live according to the prompts of your habits and your fears and your hatreds and your desires. You, you recognize in a deep intuitive way that you are free from those things. But how do you get that freedom? Well, first of all, you have to let go of what it is that keeps you unfree, namely craving, egoism, etc., and how do you let go of those things? Well, you're not going to let go of them by suppressing them or telling yourself that they're bad and you shouldn't feel that way or, or sort of sitting in meditation and going, let go, let go, let go, let go. It's not going to work. I'm sure we've tried that. But these things assail us out of our control. So how do you let go of craving? How do you as it were, release that habit. My own understanding is that you can only let go of craving by seeing, basically, it's the absurdity of it. The fact that it doesn't work. That this whole uh, pattern of behavior that is driven by, well, if only I could get this, if only I could get rid of that, if only I could secure myself in this identity. If only this, if only that, if only this, if only that. Which goes on and on and on. As the Buddha says, this is craving. It is repetitive. It keeps on going round and round and round and round and round. It wallows in attachment and greed. We can probably all relate to that. Obsessively indulging in this and that. Craving for stimulation. We all know about that one. Craving for existence. Maybe that's a little bit more tricky to get, but basically we crave to be something. And then if really things go bad and we get really depressed, then we crave non-existence. You know, life is awful. I'm going to kill myself. That would be, the, in a sense, the, the outcome. 
which again, I think in our day and age, we know an awful lot about that. So how do you get out of those cycles and rep- those cycles of repetitive behavior? That is the key question. And I think the Buddha's answer is by fully knowing the situation you are in, by embracing the totality of your human condition. Birth, ageing, sickness, death is where we start. Now the key term here is the word fully. In Pali it's pari-nya. Nya to know, pari-fully, totally know. Of course we know that we were born, we know that we're going to get old, we know that we're subject to sickness, we know that we're going to die. That's no great revelation. And we know that getting what is not dear is a drag. We know that being separated from what is dear is also a drag. Not getting what one wants. Yeah, we don't like that either. Yeah, we know all that. But do we fully know it? That's the question. Do you fully know it? And how could you fully know it? I think we can look at this in different ways. The first way, which is probably most appropriate in this setting here, is to fully know, means to quieten the mind, to find a place within oneself of greater stillness, and to then take a fresh and honest um, look at what is going on. And we call this mindfulness, basically, in the deeper sense. Or we call it vipassana. Vipassana means to look deeply. Well, actually, it means pasana means to see. V is an intensifier. It means intense seeing. And that goes hand in hand with samatha, stillness. We need to get the mind still, or stiller than usual, so that we can see more intensely. And what is it that we're going to look at? Well, the classic definition is anicca dukkha anatta. Impermanence, suffering, dukkha, sorry, and not-self that we spoke of yesterday. And these are called the marks of being, the characteristics of existence. But we don't look at these things in the abstract. In fact, it's impossible to see impermanence. Impermanence is a mark or a lakana, a characteristic of things. We can notice the breath is impermanent. We can notice how our thoughts are impermanent. We can notice how the songs of the birds are impermanent. But we can never directly see impermanence. We can never directly see suffering. I suffer, you suffer, the dog in the street suffers. But there's no such thing as suffering as such. That's why the Buddha called them marks characteristics of things. So in other words, we, we seek to look more carefully, more astutely at those uh, aspects of our existence that we tend to ignore. Or we might even say those aspects of existence that we'd rather forget about. And here I think we get close to one of the other meanings of mindfulness, which is recollection. 
mindfulness, I mean the word sati, shmirti in Sanskrit, uh, really means to remember, to recollect. And the reason that's important, particularly in this context, is because we, we spend a lot of our time in a kind of forgetfulness. And particularly, we forget that there is dukkha. We forget our condition. And we spend our time trying to somehow you know, you know, get what we want or get rid of what we don't like. The whole process, the whole dynamic of what the Buddha calls craving. So the practice of, of mindfulness and the practice of vipassana and samatha are all aspects of dukkha parinya, fully knowing dukkha. That's what it's about. And so the deeper we go into our own experience, the deeper we acknowledge our condition for what it is, the more that we reflect on life from this perspective, we start paying attention to birth, sickness, aging, death. We start to sort of consider these things in a more contemplative, reflective way. We don't shy away from them or try and ignore them. But when those opportunities come up, which, let's face it, is kind of all the time, we turn our attention to it. And we also know that to do that is actually very difficult. You try to do this very simple practice of watching your breath, and what does the mind do? It rebels. Anything but that. And you wonder, well, why is it so difficult to do such a simple thing? Why is it so difficult just to sit and, 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 and be aware, as some say in some forms of Zen. That's all you have to do. Sit and see what's going on. But there's probably nothing more difficult to do because the mind goes ape shit. It races all over the place. It flees into the most absurd trains of associative thought. So this is a training. This is a discipline. This is a, 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 a sikha, as the Buddha called it, a, a, a discipline. It takes time because we're going against the very impulses of our survival mechanism. We weren't designed by evolution to do this. We were designed by evolution to be good cravers. <laughs> it's true. So that's one aspect of fully knowing dukkha. The other aspect of fully knowing dukkha is not so much about a depth of awareness, but rather a breadth of awareness. To open our minds and our hearts to the suffering of the world. So in other words, dukkha is not just a problem I've got, something that I need to sort of be more aware of in my own meditation, say. But dukkha is pervasive of life on earth. And so all we have to do to realize this, again, not very difficult, is to open a newspaper or put on the daily news. The daily news is not saying, well, it's been a great day on earth today. No problems anywhere. Everyone's happy. No, it's not. It's all about this terrible stuff that people have to deal with. That's dukkha. And it's, it may not be our dukkha, but it is the condition we are in. And so I find that this sort of um, 
injunction, you know, fully no dukkha, is just as much about deepening our own insight into the human condition that we can see for ourselves within our own bodies and minds, and at the same time, particularly as our sense of utter, our sense of me, begins to dissolve, then we find ourselves more and more open and exposed to the suffering of the world. And that's the source or the seed of, of, of empathy, to be able to feel the pain of others. And not necessarily just our friends, but as the Buddha suggests uh, continuously, of sabbasatta, of all beings. That metta, love, compassion are directed to all beings, not just the ones that we like. And that's again very difficult. It's very easy to have lots of metta and karuna for our friends and our families. Very difficult to feel it genuinely for you know, terrorists or people that cause us a lot of grief. But this, I think, is implicit in this idea of fully knowing, or perhaps we should simply say embracing dukkha, is really embracing the world. Okay, now how does that lead to the letting go of craving? This, I think, is something that um, is maybe not ter terribly easy to grasp at first sight. But let's just give a very crude example. Um, there's been very successful campaigns through the Western world, at least in the past years, to get people to give up smoking. Now, how's that been done? It hasn't been done by the government to banning cigarettes. It's been done by a very conscious campaign of making people more conscious of the negative effects of smoking cigarettes. You, know, you buy a pack of cigarettes and it says smoking kills or whatever. And over time, through education basically, it discourages people from doing it. In other words, the more you know about the noxious effects of smoking cigarettes over time, you'll give it up. It might be a struggle at first, but you'll be sufficiently motivated to do it because it has finally registered that this is a bad idea. And it's been effective. It's worked. To some degree. Obviously, we've still got cigarette smokers. But nonetheless, you can see the point. And I think another example. Let's say, for example, that um, someone very close to you has died and you gather around this person with your family. And I suspect, like most families, there's all kinds of pettiness and squabbling and this person doesn't like this person and that person did this to the other person. And usually when you get together, it's a kind of a you know, sort of cauldron of, of suspicion and um, all kinds of conflicts going on. But when you're brought together around a death, all that stuff, it goes into abeyance, at least for a while. You realize that the things that are far more important than life, than your petty objections to what Aunt Sally said last Tuesday week, which otherwise might have preoccupied you and ruined your evening dinner, 
But when death is in the room, in the form of a corpse, of, say, a grandparent, or even worse, a child, then I suspect that all that pettiness just evaporates. And in fact, my own experience of being around death um, is that it brings people together in a deeper way. In a strange, in a, in a rather peculiar way, we sometimes find that there's a degree of, um, of openness with one another, a degree of a shared humanity, a degree, a degree of what really matters in life comes to the fore. There's almost a, inevitably a, a contemplative uh, in atmosphere created around death or sickness or ageing if we're really honestly with it. And that, I think, is how the fully knowing of dukkha at all levels begins to transform and change our priorities, our behaviours, our habits, and we come more and more to um, witness or be a witness to life from a deeper pitch of, of concern, of care, of wonder, of seriousness. And things that previously engaged our attention, we regard as maybe childish or petty, not really worthy of an authentic human uh, interest. These things begin to fall away. And I think we might find that on retreat too, that after a while, getting into a more, into a more still and focused, more open space of mind, we, we recognize that a lot of the stuff that keeps bubbling up in our minds is really rather stupid. It might keep bubbling up, but it's kind of pointless. It's a habit of mind. But it doesn't really have anything to say to the sort of experience that's opening up in meditation. We begin to somehow touch the sheer um, uh, wonder of being here at all that the world might even appear slightly brighter or richer. Our, our priorities shift. Now, of course, we also know that once we go off the retreat, we'll eat, we're going to quickly get back into the other stuff. And so the great challenge, in a way, is to cultivate a practice in which that sense of life persists beyond these formal occasions of, let's say, retreat. We'll come to look at this more towards the end of the week. And so if we understand the four truths in this way, then once we've got the idea that by fully knowing dukkha, craving will start to fall away of its own accord, we don't have to push it aside, it just won't have any purchase on us anymore. I'm not saying this is going to happen overnight, it won't. In fact, it'll constantly be something we have to work with. For the reason I mentioned yesterday, craving is not just a, a superficial habit. It's probably rooted deep in our reptilian brains. It'll keep, it'll keep happening. But once it starts to fall away, and we might notice this on a retreat, or just in the course of doing 
for shopping one day, it can happen anywhere, we begin to experience a kind of opening, a quiet, still awareness that's not dictated or, as it were, conditioned by those habits of mind. And that openness, that stillness, in which we are unconditioned by greed and hatred, delusion, is called nibbana, nirvana, the, the stopping of these things. Or it's called the unconditioned, as I mentioned yesterday. Unconditioned by these things. But that is not the end or the goal of the path. That's only step number three. It's from that open condition, that open space, even if it only lasts briefly, or we get glimpses of it flittering through the day, it's, that's the place we seek to live from. And to live from means that we, we, we see the world from that perspective, we think about it, we speak, we act, we work. In other words, the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path is what is only authentically begins from those moments or that experience or those intuitions that we are intrinsically free from those compulsive behaviors and to try to live from that freedom. And then we enter the path, or as the Buddha says, we enter the stream, the flow of life itself. And it's not just a spiritual thing. It has to do with every aspect of our life. From how we see, think, speak, etc. So, um, I'll stop there. And um, again, I'd suggest that maybe during the day you, you read through the text and just reflect on it quietly if you wish. Or, if not, at least try to reflect a bit on what it means to fully know dukkha, to let go, what letting go of craving might mean, coming out of that, the stopping of that craving, and the entering of the path. That's the process, I feel, that the Buddha um, is encouraging us to, um, to work with. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.